You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. For the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when evil people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is God's word. We just began this new series through the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we come to our passage today, we're asking essentially, what does a Christian look like? What are the marks or characteristics of a man or woman who has put their faith in Jesus Christ? The answer might be different than you think Let's pray together, and whether you're brand new and you're just joining us, or you've been a Christian for a long time, let's pray, and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to every single one of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that our acceptance is not based upon what we have done or can do for you, but upon what you have done for us. And I pray that today that would become so clear to those who do not yet know it. And for those who do, that we would be reminded of this truth and how your grace and mercy changes us from the inside out and that we would give careful attention to be led by you and say yes to the areas that you want to transform. So Spirit of God, cause our hearts to become teachable today as we open your word and may we be changed by Christ. We pray all these things in his name and everyone said, amen. Well, a police officer pulled a driver aside and asked for his driver's license and registration. And he asked, well, what's wrong officer? I wasn't speeding. Didn't run a red light or a stop sign. No, you weren't speeding, said the officer, nor did you run a red light or a stop sign. But I did see you shaking your fist furiously at that lady when you drove around her in the left lane. I further observed you were screaming at the driver who cut you off and how you were pounding the steering wheel 
and the dashboard when traffic came to a halt near the bridge. The driver said, are those crimes, officer? No, the officer said, but when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on the car, I I thought the car was stolen. (laughs) So I had to find out. (laughs) 10 seconds in and we're already feeling the conviction. (laughs) Silly story, but it raises an important question. What does a Christian look like? Is it just a matter of saying, I agree with these belief statements and then, you know, slapping a bumper sticker on your car or maybe buying a a Christian t-shirt? The kids in the room, you guys don't know what the 90s were like. Oh, the Christian t-shirt game was like at a whole other level. Like instead of Sprite, it was Spirit. (laughs) Instead of like Budweiser, King of Beers, like Jesus, King of Kings. I'm like... I don't know what that's communicating there, but as a result, there are many in the culture today that think precisely that, that there's no real difference between a Christian and someone who's not other than I claim to believe certain things and I practice certain outward religious observances. But here at the beginning of the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus reveals the very essence of a Christian. A person who has entered the kingdom of God and he describes the inside out transformation that happens when you trust in and follow Jesus. And all of us need to ask as we go through this passage now, does this describe what has happened and is happening in my life? It's a section in the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. If that word sounds unfamiliar, it's because it's actually taken, taken from the Latin phrase beatus, which means blessed. These are a statement, a series of statements from Jesus describing who are the most blessed people in the world. Who are the ones who are the most well off? When you read them, they, they feel like proverbs, timeless sayings of of wisdom. But they actually aren't like that at all. They're totally counterintuitive. The world has its own beatitudes. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the exceptional. Blessed are those who have a massive following on social media. Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the influencers. Blessed are those who had a startup and just sold it for four billion to Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. Like those are the really blessed people. Wish we could be like them. But Jesus comes along with a radically different list. And these beatitudes, these statements of blessed people actually makes no sense at all whatsoever unless... We connect them to Jesus, who he is, and what he has done for us. So by way of overview, here's how we're to understand the Beatitudes as we go through them all now. First, the Beatitudes are a description of Christian character or kingdom of God character. Second, they do not come about naturally. 
So as we go through this list, don't think, oh, does that line up? Like I'm an ENFJ, you're an INTJ. Is this kind of lining up? These do not come about naturally. He doesn't say blessed are the extroverts, blessed are the introverts. He doesn't say that. These are not statements that come from your personality, but come from heaven. And third, they reveal the distinctiveness of a Christian in this world. That there is truly a difference in essence, character, and practice. And in all of this, it shows us the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. As we said last week in our introduction, we cannot separate the power of the teaching from the power of the teacher. In fact, one Bible commentator writes that the Sermon on the Mount is descriptive before it is prescriptive. That is, it describes what a Christian is, what happens when God is at work in your life, before it describes what a Christian does. And that is how the Christian life works. And this is important, friends. Many people think Christianity means I need to become a good person and then God accepts me. But the gospel said, says God accepts you by grace and therefore you obey Jesus Christ. It's descriptive before it is prescriptive. It is indicative, it's a statement of fact, before it's imperative what you're supposed to do. In fact, I want you to notice this morning that there is a progression in the Beatitudes that becomes more and more clear upon inspection. So I don't really have points today, shocker, I know, but I do want you to notice three movements. I guess they're my points, whatever. (laughs) There's an inward blessing, and then there's an outward practice, and then there's an onward influence. So inward, outward, and onward. But I want us to pay more attention to the text. Those are just turning points. But I want us to notice the progression of all of these statements together. There's this top-down vertical transformation that then begins to describe a horizontal transformation, how we deal with people. So who are the most well-off people in the world? Who are the most fortunate? Who are the truly blessed in 2023? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? For those of you who are familiar with these words, allow it just to shock you anew and afresh. Imagine the crowd gathering around Jesus and they're like, hey, this guy's like powerful. He's doing miracles. He's gonna tell us who really is the most well-off person in the world. And Jesus said, blessed are the spiritually destitute. And you can imagine everyone saying, yeah, here, here. Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. But that's the point. The very first thing that Jesus says about who is truly blessed shows that you cannot do this in your own strength. So the way we begin here this morning, the way the Christian life really begins, is we must realize our own spiritual poverty. We are spiritually broke. No one has it all together. We are destitute in spirit. This is an example we see all throughout scripture. 
The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, if you read about him, he starts out his ministry to Israel saying, woe to you, woe to you, and woe to you too, to the nation of Israel who was in great sin and had turned away from God. And he was there calling them to repentance. But then you can read about it in the book of Isaiah, obviously. In chapter six, Isaiah then has this spiritual vision of heaven and he's transported into the very presence of God. And what does he do? After saying, woe to you and woe to you and woe to you too, in the presence of God, he says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. He realized his own spiritual poverty in the presence of a holy God. He did not say, amazing, now I can be a Christian celebrity on Instagram. This is perfect for Israel. I'm what they need. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says, woe is me. And that is precisely where Jesus begins. And it shapes how we should understand not only the rest of the Beatitudes this morning, but the whole Sermon on the Mount. Dr. D.A. Carson in his commentary puts it like this. At the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we do not have the spiritual resources to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must come to him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. The kingdom of God does not belong to those who deserve it, but to those who simply receive it by faith. That's how the church was birthed. Think of one of the most prominent leaders in the early church, Peter, the apostle, wrote a portion of the New Testament. God used him mightily to preach the message that actually birthed the church. But if you go back to the first time he met Jesus, he was on a boat as a fisherman. Jesus performs a miracle. And you know what Peter says? Depart from me for I'm a sinful man. He recognized his own spiritual poverty. And the same must be true for all of us. In comparison to a holy God, we are undone. We are bankrupt. We are spiritually nothing. Does that make you sad? Good, because that's the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you realize your spiritual poverty, it causes you to mourn. I am a sinner. I do not have what it takes. I am not a a good person that can earn any kind of justification before God. There's no way that God will accept me in my broken state. And you realize your debt that you have before God and you can't pay it. And that is what drives you to a savior. It's what drives you to a savior. And this is what Paul the apostle calls Godly sorrow, mourning over the right things in the right direction. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Worldly sorrow is someone saying, I acknowledge that things aren't as they should be. I acknowledge that I've done something wrong. 
or as we all are familiar with the passive aggressive apology that you've said to your spouse or your roommate or your brother or your sister or maybe your parents when they call you out on something and you say, I'm sorry you got upset. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? That is like the most passive aggressive apology. It's not even an apology. It's another way of saying, I'm sorry you're really sensitive to my like perfectly acceptable behavior. (laughs) That's not an apology. Worldly sorrow is the world saying to God, yeah, things aren't the way they should be, but we've got it. We'll take care. I'm still a good person. See, it's one of the beliefs that, that most people have is that we are naturally intrinsically good and we're fine. We just gotta clean up our act a little bit and then we can be our own self salvation. That's not what the Bible says. We've been wonderfully, beautifully created in the image of God and yet we're horribly tainted by sin and we need a savior. And when you realize that you're spiritually broke and you mourn over it and you realize there's nothing you could do to save yourself, godly sorrow leads to repentance. That is a turning away towards the only one who can save you and that is Jesus Christ. And so what do we hear? How is it that we are comforted? We are comforted by a forgiving God. Like the woman who is caught in the act of adultery and brought before the religious leaders of Jesus' day for judgment. But Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Or the woman who was known as a sinner in the city, but who crashed this dinner party that was hosted by Simon the Pharisee and Jesus was there and she's weeping in the presence of Jesus. Why? Jesus says she loves much because she has been forgiven much. When we mourn over our sin, when we mourn over the sin of this world, we are comforted by God because he has provided comfort through Jesus Christ, who not only lived on our behalf where we failed, but died for all of our sins so that we could be made new. The comfort we need does not come from ourselves, but beyond And so next, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The opposite of meekness is pride, a state of saying, I've got this. I'm the captain of my own destiny. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those with an epic resume. Blessed are the strong in in this country. For they're going to inherit the earth. He doesn't say that. He said, blessed are the meek. But meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. It's surrendered strength. Even though some so-called Christian celebrities are known for flaunting and exploiting power, that is not the example of meekness. Jesus is the ultimate example of meekness. The night before Jesus was crucified for our sins, what did he do? For all of his friends that would betray him hours later, he put on the outfit of a slave and he washed their feet. The lowliest act of the household servant. He used his strength for kingdom purposes, for the good of others. Jesus performed all kinds of miracles, but you know what you won't find in the gospels? Jesus ever performing acts of power for himself. He always uses his power for the glory of his father and for the good of others. 
And that is why when Jesus describes his personality, by the way, the only time Jesus ever describes his personality, he also states what happens when you trust him. He says beautifully in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word is meek. And you will find rest for your souls. This is not weakness. Jesus is the son of God. He had the power to call down angels from heaven and wipe people out. In fact, some of his disciples actually told Jesus they should do that. Hey, Jesus, you want to wipe these people out now? Maybe a little fire from heaven would would do them some good. And Jesus is like, what, really? It wasn't weakness. His power was used for his kingdom purpose. The world will tell you otherwise, that you should boast in your strengths and get your own act together and be the captain of your own destiny. But the blessed people are the meek who turn away from pride and surrender to God. Are you gifted? Are you talented? Surrender those things to the Lord. Surrender your life to the Lord and he will do mighty things through you. Those are the ones who will inherit the earth. Not deserve the earth, not conquer the earth, but inheritance is a gift. And as you surrender yourself to Jesus, you begin to change. And that's where he goes next. There's the inward blessing, but now we begin to turn a corner to the outward, how we relate to others. He says, next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So notice the progression here. The first three Beatitudes deal with our need. And then we begin to see how he changes us as he meets our need. For this hunger, Jesus says, is a strong desire for righteousness. That is right living. So if God has met me in my weak condition, I'm spiritually broke, I've got nothing, but he's met me in that. And he's given me access to his kingdom. I mourn over my sin. I look to him as savior. I surrender my life to him. How should I then live? Well, in a way that looks like him. Right living. See, when you hunger and thirst for the things that are truly right, and you're asking God for that, you will be filled. And I love the words that Jesus uses here. The word hunger literally means here to suffer in hunger, right? Some of you are there now. You're like, I want those pancakes that the youth are cooking outside. I need them. Oh, you, are you suffering right now? That's just a small glimpse of the appetite that we should have for right living. Like, God, I need right living. I need to live in this way. I can't do it in my own. So I'm longing for it. I have this huge appetite for it. And notice, friends, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who snack after righteousness. Here's the problem. Some of us, I, I know, you know, you guys are like, I just, just a little. Like, what's the order of ingredients on this Christian life package? Like, righteousness. I don't want it to be first. Maybe eighth or ninth, you know, whatever. I don't want too much righteousness. See, here's the problem. One of the reasons that we only snack on righteousness is because we're already full of other things. 
I'm sure you've had this moment. I certainly have on one occasion where I was driving home. It's dinner time. I'm so hungry. I forget that we have dinner plans, epic dinner plans, completely out of my mind. I'm just hungry. So I do what any sensible person does. You go to Dell. And I feasted. On, I went value meal, like bean and cheese burritos, red sauce and green sauce. Can I get an amen, brother? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just feeding my hunger. And then I get home. It's like, hey, we have that epic, nice steak dinner tonight. I'm like, oh no, what have I done? I'm so full of these other things of lesser value. I have no room for the feast that is about to be prepared for me. Friends, this is the truth for so many of us in a spiritual way. We are feasting on the opinions of others. We're feasting and studying. Here's how the world lives. This is what real success looks like. How are they doing it? How is she doing it? How is he doing it? And we're so full of these things in our minds and our heart. When it comes to righteousness, we crack open the Bible and we're like, just a snap. Just a little toothpick. Righteousness. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I like it. Not too much. What is it that we were so full of that keeps us from longing and hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do we view right living as a necessity just like our food and water? Well, if not, it's because we haven't realized our spiritual poverty, mourned over it, and surrendered ourselves to God. But as we do, we begin to hunger to do what is right. And what does that look like? He tells us in the next beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The world is not so merciful. Particularly in a time where we live in what we often call cancel culture. One strike, you're out. No path for redemption. Your track record, according to the cultural standards, must be perfect. It is a graceless, secular, cultural religion that we're living in. Make no mistake, we live in like a religious world. There's like a code you have to adhere to that you'll get some kind of worldly version of salvation, which is not really salvation, and oh, if you don't do that, you will be excommunicated from the church of the culture and publicly shamed. The world is not a merciful place. And if we're honest, we are not often merciful people. When people have wronged us, our impulse is often we want them to get what they deserve. You ever find yourself doing that when you watch a movie? And like the character's done wrong and then they get caught and you're like, throw the book at them. And you're like, oh, what if they could be forgiven? Oh, no, 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 no mercy. Oh, but when it comes to you, what about when you're the one who's done something wrong? Oh, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. You don't understand. Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. And it may come to a, as a surprise to many that when God describes himself, it is as a merciful God. When he revealed himself to Moses and to all of Israel 
Exodus 34 says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, it's the first thing, and gracious, not giving us what we do deserve, but instead giving us what we don't deserve, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. We need to remember the God that we serve. And I can't help but to think of the parable we studied earlier this year, the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant. A short story that Jesus told about a man who owed a master or a king a debt so great that he'd have to spend the rest of his life and his family in indentured servitude to pay it off. And yet in mercy, the king forgives him. And what does that servant do? He goes out and throttles a fellow citizen Because he owes him a very small amount and throws him into prison. The king hears about it and is furious and said, I forgave you a debt you could never pay. Why did you then go and throttle this fellow servant? Because he owed you like a couple bucks. For the Christian, we need to be reminded that we've been forgiven a debt that we can never pay back. We've been shown mercy. And when other people have wronged us and we refuse to show mercy, we are playing the hypocrite. We are playing the hypocrite because God has shown us mercy. And the healing of hypocrisy is actually what Jesus deals with next. For he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. See, God is always after the heart. And there are really several meanings here to the word pure. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, first and foremost, and perhaps most obvious, it means to be clean, to be pure without sin and without shame. And that is beautifully and wonderfully what happens when you come to Christ, no matter what you've done, or where you're from, or what you've become. You come to Jesus, and you are made clean. You're given a clean heart and a fresh start. It's remarkable. There's another meaning to the word pure. It literally means without folds. It means nothing is hidden. It means you're going to live your life out in the open. No hidden ingredients. I'm sure many of you have seen all these different bars, but the RX bar, the tagline is no hidden ingredients, and it puts the ingredients, you know, like literally on the front. Because oftentimes something is advertised on the front, but then you got to look at the fine print on, on the back to see what's really going on. And in many ways, that's like me at times. We like to put on this, this show, but meanwhile, we've got all these other little additives that we hide from other people. And in doing so, we put on the show of righteousness all the while covering up, folding up what's really going on. It could be just folding up our weakness because we don't want others to see it because we're afraid of what people will think about us because we don't want to be perceived as weak. It could be sin. It could be hidden patterns of sin that you're hiding from your spouse or your friends or your community or just folding it up, folding it up. But all that means is you're living with a mask. You're playing the hypocrite. But to be pure in heart means that you're living your life out in the open with God and with others. 
It means you're gonna be real and when you sin, you confess and you share your struggles and refuse to put on the mask. Because listen, some of us may be wearing the mask today. But listen, if that's you and you're just covering things up and you're putting on the mask, you will be a prisoner to that mask and your life will be as shallow as the mask you wear. But that's not what Jesus wants for you. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the mask wearers because they're gonna get away with it. That's not what he says. What Jesus wants for you is freedom from a divided heart and a deceitful life. And he died and rose to give it to you. And if you receive that from him, you will see God. That means greater intimacy because you're not afraid to come to God because you know that Christ has made you clean. Some of you have come to church this morning. You're like, man, I've sinned or I sinned this morning. My kids were crazy. I have a worse attitude. Yeah, you and every other parent. And then you get in the kid check line. You're like, hi, oh, bless, bless. Look at my little angel. Oh, they're little angels. I'm like, oh, no, they're not. I'm a parent. And my kids could be like, yeah, my dad's not an angel. I can tell you that. But listen, we're all, this was said before service. It's a quote that I'm sure you've heard, but it's great. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Isn't that right? Like we're here, like Jesus, help us. Cleanse me. I don't have to hide from you. Thank God I don't have to hide from you because Jesus paid for my sin. I can confess my sin knowing as 1 John 1, 7 says, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all all unrighteousness. And as a result, there's greater transparency with others. You live your life out in the open before God and before man, which leads to greater expectancy. You shall see God one day in all of his glory, but here and now through your life. And that's where he goes next. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, for they shall be called the children of God. How can we not seek to make peace when God has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ? Having been reconciled to God, we are to practice being reconciled to other people. Now, this is not a peace at any price where we pretend that wrongs have not taken place. But rather, knowing that wrongs have taken place, we choose not to take vengeance. We're not going to look to make other people pay, but we offer forgiveness, set up boundaries if we must, but work for peace. Now, not everyone will always participate. After all, as we say often, reconciliation is a two-way street. You can offer it, but they have the choice to reject it or accept it. And that's why Paul the Apostle gives this word of wisdom in Romans chapter 12 on this peacemaking business. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a verse to chew on. And I love the clarity that Paul gives here because listen, it's not always possible and it doesn't always depend on you. Maybe some of you are thinking about a situation that's fallen apart with a family member or a close friend. You've tried to make peace, but they're not having it. And you feel guilty that you haven't been able to make peace. Listen, it's not always possible and it doesn't always depend on you. But 
far from being cynical, as much as it does depend on you, make every effort to be at peace with everyone. Because as we do, it reflects the peace that God has brought to us. And as we do, it reveals that we are the children of God. It says you'll be called the children of God. Like, wow, you're seeking peace in a world that seeks vengeance? And your answer is yes, because Christ is my peace. After all, the best way to be a peacemaker is to introduce other people to Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake, not everyone is gonna like this. And so Jesus goes on. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Not only is this paragraph important, but I think even the placement of it is important. Because lest we get this idea that if you just do all these things, everyone's gonna love you. It's a reminder that if you live like Jesus, you will inevitably be treated like Jesus. Jesus was popular for his miracles. He was not popular for calling people out on their sin. I do wonder how many of the so-called televangelists would be popular if they started preaching the truth of Jesus. See, there is this idea in the church today that if we're just strategic enough, funny enough, that people will just flock to the church. And if they don't, well, it's because we didn't relate enough. And sure, we make mistakes all the time. But the Bible tells us that the natural mind, apart from grace, is at war with God. And there are many that will hate and reject the truth. And so Jesus says over and over throughout the gospels, like, they're going to reject me. So don't be surprised when they reject you as they did the prophets who were before you he says, because many are not willing to acknowledge their sin. Friends, do not be surprised when people reject you or hate you in a culture that lives off the praise and affirmation of other people. But one more practical point. Make sure that when you're persecuted, it's for righteousness' sake. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the obnoxious, (laughs) And I will never forget, before I was a Christian, it was just a year before I would become a Christian. Um, it's a long story, I'll spare you. I did go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, very bad decision. And I was sitting out by myself on this curb and there was these like evangelist group. They had the big signs, you know, like Turner Burn. And this guy comes up to me as I'm there in my like sick state, it was very bad. And he says to me, hey kid, you wanna live forever? I was like, not with you, you know? <laughs> like, that was it. Like, that was his pitch. That was his pitch for the gospel. And I was like, that's it? Now, a year later, someone preached the gospel to me. They invited me to this event. I heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. I saw the truth of Jesus and I was saved. It was amazing. But I looked back on that moment and I thought, okay, 
Note to self, if you're gonna share the gospel, don't do it like that. Don't just be lame. See, some people, they're just like really mean. I'm just persecuted. I'm just posting 27 things a day on Facebook. I'm just persecuted. It's like, come on. Make sure it's for righteousness sake. Make sure you're actually reflecting Jesus. And when you do, know that there will be rejection. But rejoice because great is your reward. And this is where Jesus turns the corner to the onward influence out into the world. We have a picture of an effective witness, one who is spiritually bankrupt, someone who mourns over their sin and in meekness surrenders their life to Christ, hungering and thirsting for things that are right, taking off the mask before God and before man, showing mercy to others. And what will the result be? Well, this is where Jesus lands, our influence in the world. He says, you will be the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And as we reflect on the metaphor of salt, it's so powerful. Why? Because first, salt is a preservative. Back in the ancient day, you'd pack the, the meat in these containers full of salt so that the meat would not decay. It's a statement saying this world is festering but that the influence of Christians in the world will prevent that decay. But also that the salt brings flavor. We're showing people what the meaning of life is that people are looking for in pleasure or religiosity, but with no hope. And we're saying Jesus is the source of life. Knowing him is what life is all about. That joy that you have, it brings a flavor to a flavorless world. But also salt was used for medicinal purposes to heal wounds. And when you are living as Christ prescribes, you will act as a healing agent for those who are hurting and lost in the world. But here's the thing. Salt, in order to be used, it has to come out, you know where I'm going. It's gotta come out of the salt shaker. See, so many Christians, they, they live in their bubble and they're like, you know, oh, kids, that's a non-Christian. Come over to the other side. You know, come over here. Don't touch them. It's like, wait a minute. What are we thinking? Like that the church is like, hey, we're one big salt brick. Come on in and have a taste. Well, nobody's coming. <laughs> the salt needs to be out of the salt shaker, out into the world. People often complain, why is the world so dark when they just like sit in their living room and like, Post something on Facebook and think, consider the world salted. I did my kingdom work today. It's like, be involved. Of course, on the one hand, Jesus is speaking of the broader influence of the corporate church, but do not underestimate your personal impact as salt in this life. Your presence in the lives of the people who are around you absolutely matters. It stops the decay. It brings the flavor of eternal life and it brings healing to a hurt world. Don't withdraw. Jesus says you are to be in the world, but not of the world. You want the boat in the water, not the water in the boat. You are the salt of the earth. And our hope is that we would point people to Jesus Christ. And that's the last thing. You are the light of the world, he says. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, you are to reflect my light in this world. And that light is meant to be seen. Don't hide it. Don't hide your influence. Don't intentionally remove the truth from your conversations or hide your influence from the presence of other people. Your light is to be seen so that others can see Christ. Because what does light do? It reveals and exposes the problem. What causes us to stumble, which is sin. But light also illuminates Christ who is the solution. And as we let our light shine together, we are like a city or a town set on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. That's what Christ wants for us. But we do well to notice the progression. We try to mix these things up. We, we wanna be peacemakers first or we wanna try to become pure in heart first. But today, let us respond in the way Christ describes here. Poor in spirit, we don't have what it takes. We mourn over sin. We humble ourselves before God and in meekness surrender ourselves to him. And then we begin to hunger and thirst for right living. We pray and we ask him to help us live rightly. And as a result of being filled, we become merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. And we will receive opposition and persecution, but we will also be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And it all starts in the same way the Christian life continues. A desperation for God, which leads to a blessedness from God when we receive from him. And all of that comes true in Christ. So are you needy for God? If you're not yet a Christian, cry out to him today and say, Jesus, save me. No one else can, nor can I save myself. Christian, do you feel poor in spirit today? I know I do. Good news. You're blessed. Come and receive from God that you might be filled. Is your life making other people thirsty for God? If not, Pray and ask that your life, the way you live, would make other people thirst for God. Do you feel fragile in your faith? Rejoice that all of these blessings that Jesus declares are gifts from him. Your response today is to receive from him. Let's do that now. Let's receive as we respond. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do not have in ourselves what it takes. We are spiritually broken and poor in spirit. And we're asking even now that that awareness would move us to trust in you, to receive from you, to ask for forgiveness and power and strength and newness that we might respond in prayer and in praise that we might leave here empowered by your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. So Holy Spirit, we're asking any of these areas that you want to address. Maybe there are some here who are 
hiding parts of their lives from you and from others, we pray that you'd bring it into the light. For those who are covering up or withdrawing their influence, pray that you would convict them and push them out into the world with your message. Pray for those for whom the fear of man is controlling their lives. I pray that you'd set them free. Pray for those of us who are just straight up prideful and we just don't want to confess that we have need, that we'd humble ourselves, swallow our pride and come and receive prayer and confess our sin this morning. God, in all this, would you just fill us? That's what you do, Lord. We are broken vessels and you fill us again and again. So may we experience that now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.